0: Turn, if you would, please, to your copies of the scripture, or in your copies of the scripture, to the letter to the church at Corinth, Paul's first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're continuing our study through the letter. I'll be reading verses 10 uh, through chapter 3, verse 1 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 10. These things, Paul says... And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I've entitled the message this morning, Are We Spiritual People? It's a question. Are we spiritual people? Was Corinth a community of spiritual people? When we last looked at the church and its situation we discovered that Paul was continuing to address the problem of divisions in the church. Now his method has been bold, it's been direct. He takes on the underlying cause of the division with zeal and bluntness. Now too much, in Paul's opinion, too much is at stake for him to waste time or to waste words. The divisions of the church must be arrested and immediately So Paul works to prove to the Corinthian brethren that at the root of their trouble was a false appraisal of human endeavor as somehow religious and spiritual, that it was somehow excellent in terms of redemptive value. Their veneration of eloquence and material wisdom had broken their fellowship. And Paul makes it clear how foolish that was. First of all, he reminded them, you'll recall, that saving knowledge of Christ Jesus had nothing to do with the world's wisdom or accomplishments. The wisdom of the gospel of Jesus Christ had come from God and not the world. And it was attended with an unearthly power. The redeeming power and purpose of God in Jesus Christ, Paul argued, was revealed by God alone out of an impenetrable obscurity that human discernment couldn't even imagine, let alone discover. This wisdom from God was spiritual. It was revealed, it was driven with saving power in the Corinthian church by the very Spirit of God, and it changed them. It had transformed them with a power that no earthly wisdom or rhetoric or reason possesses. Now that revelation of divine wisdom in Jesus Christ also had come to the church with permanence, Paul argued, real everlasting permanence, unlike anything in this world or of human origin. And as it arrived with this inexplicable revelation of truth and power and saving and converting grace, it brought with it understanding of things that were beyond the scope of human understanding. It brought real spiritual knowledge of God, of Jesus Christ, of the purpose of the inestimable value of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ at Calvary. They had come to discover at Corinth and even understand, even, they've even been transformed by spiritual knowledge, spiritual revelation from God, which even angels had long desired to look into. Why then, Paul asks, and we can imagine with a shake of his his very tired, his very concerned old head, Why replace these things with a wealth that's not wealth, with fool's gold of human accomplishment? Why let such empty, worthless, and powerless things destroy the fellowship of Jesus Christ into which God had called them? Now at this point, as we we spent about three weeks untangling Paul's argument about the divisions in the church and what was wrong in Corinth, at this point we might end up wondering This this high appreciation of human accomplishment in the Corinthian church, was this a community of spiritual people at all? As we've observed the church up to this point, we've noted Paul's examination of the Corinthian church, and we could easily come away scratching our head and wondering about that. Now that question will only become more troubling for us as we move forward into this letter and learn more of the happenings at Corinth. So how do we answer the question? Is there a way that we can answer it early? Yes, there is. But we have to ask another question. What is a spiritual person? How do we define it? Was Corinth spiritual? Well, we answer the question the way Paul answers it in chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says this, "...but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ." What Paul is teaching us is that they were somewhat shallow spiritual people, still overly infatuated with the material. They weren't presently people of a deep spiritual maturity and fellowship. They were infants in Christ, not mature adults to whom deeper wisdom could be imparted. They weren't prepared to receive such things. So the answer is yes, they were spiritual people, but with caveats, with stipulations. Now we begin to examine this sort of conditional yes as found in chapter 3, verse 1. Somehow, Corinth has reached a point of arrested development in her Christian sanctification and in her growth into the stature of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 4 13, Paul speaks of attaining, quote, to the unity of the faith, which Corinth didn't presently have, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature and the fullness of Christ. In Corinth, that process of attainment has greatly slowed, possibly even halted for a time. Now, revelatory of this halt was their church division. That division was a break in the unity of the faith, which Paul commended the church at Ephesus to attain to. That division spoke of a spiritual immaturity. Now let's note the problem and ask the necessary question. How do we avoid the arrested development of Corinth at Christ Reformed Church? That's our question. If we're already here, what does it look like? How do we fix it? If it's coming, how do we prepare to work past this arrested development when it appears? This is the problem we have before us today as we look at the passage. We're asking the question to begin with, I'm going to tackle this problem by asking what is spiritual growth and maturity? What is that? We pray for it. I've heard some of you pray for that. We prayed for it this morning. I think we're growing spiritually. We think we're growing spiritually. We suppose that we're spiritual people, but can we know that we are? Now this is a question that the world can't help us with at any level. The way the world defines being a spiritual person is entirely disconnected from what Paul is teaching us about spiritual maturity. The world defines a spiritual person as a religious person, someone who's in touch with their inner feelings, who believes in things unseen generally. A spiritual person, the world tells us, is someone deeply connected to nature or to spiritual beings. A spiritual person is one, the world tells us, who can meditate and contemplate their navel for extended periods of time. They can enter into meditative states and trances. A spiritual person, the world tells us, is one who can get along with people of all backgrounds and beliefs and accept them for who they are. What a spiritual person. A spiritual person, they tell us, is someone who has peace at all times, no worries, no cares, hakuna matata. A spiritual person is someone with deep insight and knowledge of mystical information. Someone who has learned numerology and secret things. Someone with absolutely recognized wisdom and eloquence about the human condition. Insight into spiritual and deep things. That's a spiritual person. A spiritual person knows the advantage of a good narcotic. To help you develop those spiritual experiences and spiritual knowledge. Brethren, what a mess. What a mess. What a self-contradicting, empty, vain, hopeless mess. Now, some of that mess, brethren, has even penetrated into the thinking of the Corinthian church. And it exists, and you know it, in churches in our nation even now. So what is a spiritual person? To begin to address the question, we need to understand how spiritual growth and spiritual maturity originates. Now, Paul helps us answer this question. First of all, Paul teaches us that it's not self-discovery or the discovery of anything of human origin. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10, Paul told us these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. It's not about man. It's not about man. The first thing Paul is teaching us is that spirituality proceeds from the revelation of God of himself. It's not about human endeavor or accomplishment. Nothing of human origin will contribute to spiritual knowledge and spiritual conversion or transformation in a person. We do not become a spiritual person apart from the Spirit of God revealing himself, revealing his will, his purpose, his excellency, his holiness, his law, his judgment, his grace, his goodness, his redemption. Spiritual knowledge and spiritual transformation proceeds from God and through His Spirit's work alone. Now, perhaps someone might be tempted to argue well, Paul, can't some of the things about God be known by observation? Don't the heavens declare the glory of God? Doesn't the sky proclaim His handiwork? Just like the psalmist declares, don't men by nature know the law of God at some level, as Paul argues in Romans 1? Well, the short answer is yes, of course, to be sure. But that's not what Paul's talking about. In chapter 2, verse 10, Paul is not talking about cursory, shallow knowledge, but deep things. Notice he uses the phrase, the depths of God. He says in verse 11 that no one comprehends the thoughts of God. Now he's talking about the thoughts of God, something clearly unreachable, unattainable by man. In verse 14, Paul tells us that this knowledge can't even be understood by men. Now previously, in verse 9, Paul indicated that no person can even imagine this revelation of the intent and the purpose of God for his people. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the knowledge of salvation in Jesus Christ, which had been revealed by the Spirit of God to the Corinthian believers. Knowledge which had come with converting power by the working of the Spirit of God in them. Foundationally then, To be a spiritual person, we must have received the knowledge of Jesus Christ's redemptive work with power from the Spirit of God, regenerating us and transforming us. That's foundationally what it means to be a spiritual person. All of that proceeds from God. A man will never produce spirituality in himself or in any other creature. We're asking the question, of how spiritual growth and maturity originates. And Paul's second thought in answer is that it originates with knowledge of the deep things of God. Now I'm trying to emphasize the content and the quality of knowledge proceeding from God, which makes a spiritual person. It's not knowledge of a man to a man. It's not self-revelation. It's God-revelation. It's not coming to an understanding of yourself through your own thoughts and your own perspective, but coming to an understanding of God through his revelation of himself in the work of Jesus Christ. Now with that revelation, you are given an understanding of yourself through God's thoughts, from his perspective. And brethren, when that happens, it's not pretty, is it? It's not. Man isn't revealed in some hidden unknown glory when that happens. Ye shall be his gods. Far from it. That's not what happens. Rather, when the deep things of God are revealed to us, things like his holiness and his righteousness, what happens to our perspective of ourselves? It greatly diminishes, doesn't it? What happens to the golden dreams of humanism? They pop like an overinflated bubble, don't they? To be a spiritual person is to see God and oneself from God's perspective. Brethren, think about what we're saying. It's to have access to certain of God's thoughts about sin, about the fall, about redemption, about His own loving kindness and grace. These are deep things only revealed by God of Himself through His Spirit. This is the origin of the spiritual person. Now how very different that is from the way the world defines spirituality and what a spiritual person is. This is foreign to the world. It must be foreign to the world because it's of divine origin and the world, we're told, is at enmity with God both by choice and by constitution. Now here we discover another facet to the gem of spirituality. True spirituality In a truly spiritual person is a naturally foreign object in the world. Paul explains this. Listen to what he says in verses 14 and 15. Chapter 2 verses 14 and 15. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're falling to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Now, what is Paul teaching here? First of all, Paul is teaching us that the world is naturally ignorant of spiritual things. So how can it be spiritual or even recognize what is spiritual? In verse 11, we read this statement. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Spiritual understanding proceeds from God and of God and is derived from the thoughts of God of himself and his holy will and purpose. The Spirit of God has been given to God's people, in this case to the Corinthian brethren. Now this is why we read the following in verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Now stay with my logic and Paul's logic for a moment. Here's here's the logic. If the thoughts of God are the source and origin of spiritual knowledge and understanding, and if the Spirit of God has only freely revealed such things by his Spirit to us and not the world, then the world is entirely ignorant of spiritual knowledge and understanding. The world can't be spiritual or discern spiritual truth because God has not given his spirit to the world, but to the church. Therefore, only the church is not ignorant of spiritual truth. Only the church. It gets worse than that, though, brethren. Paul teaches us that not only is the world ignorant of real spirituality because God has not freely given that revelation and understanding to the world, but naturally, by nature, the world has no capacity to receive and to discern spiritual things, even if presented with such. Now we're talking about incapacity, inability. Paul declares this to the Corinthians in verse 14 when he says that the natural person doesn't accept the things these things because quote he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned unquote it's a lost cause paul saying for the world even before they start any person born into this world is born without the capacity to receive spiritual wisdom without the capacity to be a spiritual person because none are born with the ability no man can impart the ability and none can acquire the ability on their own We're really discovering, aren't we, what I said earlier, that spirituality is foreign to this world. So far we've seen that the foreign nature of spirituality, one might say the entirely holy nature of spirituality is revealed in that the world is naturally ignorant of spiritual things and naturally incapable of receiving spiritual revelation. Now Paul goes even further when he tells us that the natural man refuses spiritual things by default. In verse 14 we read, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And why does he not accept them? Because to the natural person, the average man, woman, and child, the person whom the Spirit of God has not converted and transformed with power, to that person, spiritual things are perceived as folly, absurdity. Verse 14, so he rejects them as folly. The natural man can't be a spiritual person because he refuses to be. That's what Paul's saying. The wisdom and the power of God revealing spiritual truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ holds no excellency to the natural man. Now, as we read before, remember, these things are a stumbling block to the Jew and to the Greek, folly. That's where we're at. Now, it doesn't stop there. We're talking about the foreign nature of spirituality to the world, to the worldling. As if this was not enough proof that spirituality is foreign to this fallen world, Paul goes on to explain that every person born into this world who attempts to discern spiritual things with his or her own power of discernment, they will fail. In verse 15 we read these words, The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. What's Paul saying? Paul is telling us that those to whom the Spirit of God has revealed the spiritual truth, the, the work of Jesus Christ in Him crucified, those alone are able to judge or discern everything through the lens of spiritual wisdom. Through their conversion, brethren. Now, as he or she, is that redeemed believer looks at the world estimating the value and the worth of things in this world things like sin and sensuality and human accomplishment to that person the spiritual worth of these things is known it's discerned now the person of the world may come with the spirit of the world with worldly wisdom, and with worldly evaluation, and worldly knowledge, and worldly systems of appraisal. That one may come in an attempt to evaluate and judge the spiritual worth of the believer's faith, but he will surely fail in that attempt. That's what Paul's saying. The believer's faith, his or her real spirituality, will never be discerned and properly evaluated by the man or the woman of the world. If they attempt it, they'll not only fail, but it'll be an epic failure. If there's any recognition at all, they'll fail to identify it properly. It's old-fashioned. That's old-fashioned. It's conservatism. They'll call it that. They'll call your spiritual wisdom, your spiritual discernment, your spirituality Judeo-Christian ethic. Or they'll call it Western cultural bias. They'll call it nuttiness. They'll call it a psychological illness. They'll call it intersectional racism or classism or sexism. They'll call it Christian nationalism. They'll call it Christofascism. That's why you can be judged by no one. They can't do it. They fail in an epic way. I'm reminded of 1 Peter chapter 4, 3 through 4, when we consider how the world fails in its judgment of the spiritual man or woman in Christ Jesus. Peter says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. What do they want to do? Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you what you're doing is evil you see they can't judge you they don't have that discernment brethren paul and peter are both telling us that real spirituality is so foreign to the world that when the world sees it when people see spiritual truth believed by you and lived out in your life they attempt to judge it to discern it and in their inevitable failure they end up calling it evil And we've been asking the question of how spiritual growth and maturity originates. Exploring what Paul teaches on the matter. And now I think it's time to return to our original question. Was the church at Corinth a community of spiritual people? Now I rather vaguely answered that early when I said yes, they were a spiritual people but with caveats. And I based that incomplete answer on Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 3.1. Now I'm hopeful that at this point you can begin to see the form of some of these stipulations that Paul has attached to them being spiritual people. Yes, they were spiritual because we know they were redeemed, but they were also material. Yes, great revelation of God of himself through his spirit had come to them. Yes, they had indeed tasted and seen that the Lord was good. Jesus Christ had indeed formed them into a fellowship of spiritual people in himself. But the growth and the maturity of that spiritual community had come under a threat and ground to a halt. Chloe reported it to Paul. And now we come to the question of how and why. Now we want to ask ourselves what happened to halt their spiritual growth and render them perpetual infants in Christ Jesus. Why were they spiritual babes instead of being spiritually mature brethren? Now we've arrived at the question of our own danger, of danger to Christ's Reformed Church. It's possible, apparently, for God's people, really redeemed spiritual people, to reach a point of arrested development. They can cease, we can cease, to continue to mature in Jesus Christ in our faith. And though some of the character of Christ will still be apparent in us, much of his stature and his image will be absent. That should concern us. Let me say it another way. Are babies really all that attractive? Are babies really all that attractive? Now, I'm not asking you if they're cute, or if they're engaging, or if they're fun, or if they're worthy of our interest and protection and nurturing. Throw all that out. I'm asking you if they're generally graceful and admirable and worthy of honor. You see the difference in what I'm asking? When when they begin to take on the traits of their parents, we begin to see more beauty in them, more grace, ideally more dignity. This is what we're talking about when we examine the problem of arrested spiritual development. Where's the beauty? Where's the grace? Where's the dignity of Christ? What if it isn't progressing in its development in us? Or in a brother or sister in Christ? Or as we look at the condition of the Christian church in America today, let's ask that question. Why has the Christian church in America apparently largely ceased to grow into the wisdom and the stature of Jesus Christ? This is the original problem I stated at the beginning of the sermon, just stated in another way. How is spiritual maturity arrested? Well, Paul helps us understand the danger of perpetual spiritual immaturity by pointing out a fact to us at the beginning of his letter which will help clear up modern misconceptions about this. What misconceptions? Let's tackle a couple of these misconceptions. First of all, Paul makes it clear that a Christian's spiritual growth and maturity is not immediately accomplished and fully accomplished at conversion. In 1 Corinthians 1.4, Paul has said the following... I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. He says this. Clearly, to Paul's mind, these were regenerate believers. He names them as such and he addresses them as such throughout the letter. Now, this is instructive to us in that it teaches us that every Christian is born a spiritual infant, there are no old souls born into spiritual maturity. Now, didn't we learn that? Haven't we seen that when we studied Mark's gospel? Time and time again, even the disciples act very spiritually immature. They have foolish arguments. If even the disciples under the direct tutelage of Jesus Christ, who was bodily present there to teach them, if even the disciples require a maturing process, surely we ought to expect that of ourselves and our brethren as well. After all, We read that the Apostle Paul admonished the Ephesian church to strive to attain to the wisdom and stature of Jesus Christ. Spiritual maturity is therefore a process of procedural sanctification in a believer's life. It's not imputed to us at conversion the way justification is. It's not complete. Now, what a problem this misconception can be to new Christians in the faith. It's why I'm pointing it out to you. Full of zeal, full of excitement, and not necessarily knowing that they lack maturity because no one's told them. New converts to the faith have a great battle ahead of them, a long pilgrimage as sojourners in the world. Maturity is not instant. How often do new, immature Christians place themselves in danger of spiritual temptation? and worldly distractions, and carnal snares, thinking themselves strong and well-armored, only to discover they've only barely begun to put on the whole armor of God with which to resist the schemes of the devil. The arm holding the shield of faith is barely strengthened at this point. It's not yet trained with endurance and battle-hardened to lift against Satan's fiery darts. They need to be warned. They need to be matured. This is what Paul is doing in Corinth. Corinth's going to have problems with morality. We'll see that soon. are talking about misconceptions. Here's another one. Note that Paul does not tie spiritual maturity to biblical knowledge. In 1 Corinthians 1, 1.5, we read these words. In every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. That was Corinth. The understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of redemptive grace, of all knowledge connected to the work of Jesus Christ revealed through the scriptures, none of that was absent in the congregation of Corinth. Not only did they possess all vital and needful scriptural knowledge, but their understanding of at least the doctrines of salvation was excellent enough to eloquently express and teach these doctrines. When Paul calls them spiritual infants at the beginning of chapter 3, it wasn't due to ignorance of the truths of Scripture. Now this is a misconception, brethren, which to my mind is often found in the Protestant Reformed faith. The letters after a person's name do not speak to his or her spiritual maturity. To call someone a theologian is not to name them a spiritual sage. Giving the honorific title, doctor, to a man does not equate with identifying him as having matured to the wisdom and the stature of Jesus Christ paul will soon tell us in 1 corinthians 8:1 that naturally knowledge puffs a person up much learning naturally makes a man proud How unlike the stature of Jesus Christ into which we ought to grow, the stature of one who was so humble, calling himself the Son of Man, though he had right to more glorious divine titles. Brethren, spiritual maturity is not based in the knowledge a person possesses. Corinth has demonstrated that inescapable fact. Let's therefore note it. Let's be wary of assigning spiritual maturity to leaders and influencers, so-called sages and theologians in the Reformed faith, simply because they know the Scriptures well and are good preachers and teachers. Now that logically brings us to the removal of another misconception. Note that Paul does not attribute the Corinthian spiritual immaturity to the absence of spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians 1 7, he says, You are not lacking in any gift. Brethren, they had gifts we can't imagine. And they're spiritual infants, fleshly. It's easy to see, let's deal with it right on the top, that the charismatic church has missed the boat on this one. The Apostle Paul tells us plainly that the Corinthian church didn't lack any spiritual gifts. His teaching on the gifts of the Spirit is going to expand as we proceed in our study of 1 Corinthians. But for now, let's simply note that they had them all and still Paul says what he says of their immaturity in chapter 3. So the possession of the gifts of tongues and healing and prophecy and preaching knowledge into deep things of the gifts of the Spirit are not directly tied to spiritual maturity either. One may speak with the tongues of men and angels and spiritually speaking be nothing more than an obnoxious clanging noise. One may be a gifted and eloquent preacher and still remain spiritually immature. What a warning. How careful we ought to be. Even now, this should cause our thoughts to turn inward and our examination of self to commence. What if I'm spiritually immature? What if I've reached a state of arrested spiritual development. And I don't know it because I've identified the wrong indicators of spiritual immaturity. Paul has deliberately, he's meticulously brought our thinking to this very point of self-question. And now I think it's helpful if I read once more the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Listen to what Paul says. But I, brethren, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of of the flesh. As infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while, while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? And now we've reached the basis of arrested spiritual development. We learn that spiritual immaturity persists when brethren are fleshly. You're still of the flesh, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 3. In other words, you're still keeping yourselves from growing spiritually because of the proximity of material influences and material things that you inordinately value. And these things have interrupted your growth. Let me give you an example from nature. When you look at an oak tree, we've got that huge oak tree in my backyard that the big tire swing hangs from. When you look at an oak tree like that, you'll note that no other tree grows under its sweeping branches. And that's not just because Jacob mows regularly. You often won't even find very large, healthy, brushy bushes growing under an oak tree. Why? Well, you might attribute it to the lack of light under the branches, Old oak trees have a massive sweeping canopy of branches, and that certainly will make it difficult for plants to grow since they need the light to grow. So you're not wrong, but you're not right. The oak tree wasn't always that size, was it? Once it was a tiny acorn. What kept the other trees than the brushy bushes from overtaking it over the years as it grew from small to large? After all, oak trees grow fairly slowly. Well, the answer is found in the fact that oak roots produce phytotoxins. Phytotoxins leach out into the soil and poison the roots of other trees around them. If a Douglas fir seed dropped close to an oak sapling and rooted, very soon the roots of the newly sprouted fir would begin to die and rot. Its growth would be constricted and restrained. And the closer you get to the oak, the more concentrated the phytotoxins will be. Trees near the edge of the hidden root system will be stunted, Until the oak overgrows them and trees nearest the roots will be killed eventually. Now, that analogy I present to you because it's similar to what Paul is telling the Corinthian church has held back their spiritual growth. Their inordinate valuing of material things of the world and the flesh had poisoned the growth of their spiritual lives. They couldn't grow upward into the stature of Jesus Christ because material influences and desires have already captured their interest. Paul helps us see their fleshly infatuation when he once again points out the divisions in the church in chapter 3. Remember, those cliques had been formed by valuing human accomplishment. They had wrongly appraised the value of human wisdom, of philosophy and rhetoric. Even human bearing and carriage and comportment had greatly influenced them. Now as we proceed into our study of this letter, we'll discover that the Corinthian infatuation with these things had extended to affect prominence in the church, position in the church. It affected the administration of the Lord's Supper. It produced class bias in the church. It developed into careless dismissal of some brethren as unworthy of Christian deference and love and kindness, even impacting common courtesy. Love for worldly things, we'll discover, caused some of the church to close their eyes to immorality. It caused them to spiritually injure the consciences of their brethren even. The powerful presence of the influence of materialism was poisoning the church and had entirely halted, generally speaking, the church's spiritual growth. Consider this as well. Witness to this fact was the presence of the obvious divisions in the church. Now Paul's going to proceed, as we move forward into chapter 3, he's going to proceed to explain how materialism was poisoning the church. And we'll look into that more in future Sundays. But for now, as we wrap things up this morning, let's simply consider how the divisions of the church contributed to the persistent spiritual immaturity of Corinth. This is a snake-swallowing-itself kind of situation. Now what do I mean by that? I mean that there is a self-perpetuating problem here. Materialism had interrupted the spiritual growth of the church, resulting in broken fellowship. And simultaneously, that broken fellowship in the church was a powerful contributing factor to the continued spiritual immaturity of the church, resulting in the persistence of materialism. See why I'm talking about the snake swallowing itself? You can't, you know, I'll let you do the chicken or the egg thing on your own. Think about that on your own time. Good luck with that. I'm more interested in noting the practical lessons, the warning declared by this spiritual problem. What lessons? What warnings? Well, first of all, brethren, let's simply note that materialism is a deadly foe of the Christian. It's not just a little foe. It's a deadly foe. It's poison. To love the world and the things of the world is to be at enmity with Christ. You cannot serve God and mammon as the things which appeal to us at a material level reach into our hearts and capture our affections, simultaneously we halt in our spiritual growth. Love for the world is like a sleeping dragon. If it awakes, it can devour our love for God, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for His church, for our brethren. This is such a common, ubiquitous foe that we forget it's around us all the time. So common is fleshly appeal that we can easily become numb to its presence in our lives. And then comes lack of caution. And then comes falling into the net. Be watchful, brethren. If you wonder today, am I growing spiritually? Am I maturing as a Christian? Am I becoming more like Jesus Christ? But as you examine yourself, you discover growing love for the world or you find jealousy and envy of those things, or the, for, for those things in the world that others possess, then the short answer is no, you're not growing. You've reached a state of spiritual arrested development. If you find that your energy and your time is greatly invested in playing, and hobbies, entertainments, and material earthly interests, not even in things that are necessarily sinful or evil, just earthly, be careful you may have reached a state of perpetual spiritual infancy. And especially note wicked desires for sinful pleasures. These things latch on like a viper, and the longer that snake is attached, the more spiritual poison is injected into you. Beware of materialism. Being fleshly, as Paul puts it, it will make you forever weak and ungainly, a weak, small, helpless victim of Satan and the desires of the flesh, a perpetual spiritual babe. Now, if you find that this is true of you, that your spiritual growth has ceased, look for those materialistic poisons like the roots of the oak that you've connected to your life and remove them. If you can't remove them from your life, remove your life from them. It's worth it. If you cannot remove them from your life, you won't grow spiritually. Why allow what is poisoning your spiritual growth to continue to have that kind of destructive effect? Repent of those fleshly affections. Turn from them. That may be the first really spiritually mature action that you've engaged in in a long time. Just doing that. Make it the first of many as the indwelling Spirit of Christ gives you the victory. Brethren, very often growth comes with pain. This is a fact of life. Talk to some of our teenagers. They can tell you about that. You know about growing pains. And some of you adults remember painful decisions in the past that you've been required to make as Christians for Christ. Decisions to separate from the world for the good of your soul, for his cause. Repentance for the cause of Christ to grow into his stature. Remember that work and continue it. That's what I'm saying. Now let's close with this second lesson of warning from Paul's teaching about arrested spiritual development and then we're done. His warning about how divisions in the church bore witness to this spiritual stasis that they had fallen into. The fellowship of Jesus Christ into which we've been called with our brethren, this church body, Christ Reformed Church, is an effectual means whereby the Spirit of God grows us into the stature of Jesus Christ. Neglect it. Injure its unity. Sow discord in its body. Separate yourself from it. Refuse its counsel. Shun its corporate devotions. Do that to the injury of your spiritual growth and maturity. Do that and halt your work to attain to the stature of the fullness of Christ. So much could be said at this point that I hardly know where to begin So let me pause and give you this last analogy. Have you ever seen a poorly devised lawn sprinkler system working? Vegas, oh man. Or perhaps it was well designed and laid out originally, but one or more of the sprinkler heads has failed or it's failing. The water maybe doesn't spread evenly, it misses some areas, and perhaps maybe even the water pressure has diminished to the point that the circle of water reaches out to only half the distance that it once did. Whatever the case, you'll note, the grass nearest to the sprinkler head will be lush and green, and as you move out further from the sprinkler, the grass gets smaller, yellower, becomes sparse, until you reach the furthest edge of the water's reach, and there the grass is shortest, and it looks dead and wilted. Brethren, that's like the effect of the Christian who neglects and injures the unity and the fellowship of the church. That's the spiritual side to it. Refuse to be where God has said, there I will be in the midst of them. Refuse to contribute to the work of the church, stirring one another up to love and good works. Neglect to gather together as is the manner of some. Sow discord instead of unity, and your spiritual growth will be like that lawn grass furthest from the sprinkler head, you'll be dry, stunted, and injured. Now, if you've examined yourself this morning during the preaching, and you've wondered, brethren, I've had to wonder, have I reached a state of spiritual stasis? Or, God forbid, even spiritual declension? If you've asked that question, then remind yourself that the life-giving Spirit of God has promised to be in this place in a special way where two or three have gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. Bind yourself to the fellowship to which he has called you. That was Corinth's mistake. Engage in the church's good. Engage in her worship and her devotion. Use the water from the sprinkler head which God has bountifully given to help you separate yourself from the materialism of the world, which works against your spiritual growth and maturity. Spiritual growth and maturity, listen to me, please. Spiritual growth and maturity doesn't happen outside the church. That's what Paul is telling Corinth. You may be saved and full of spiritual knowledge and possess amazing gifts of the spirit and praise god but outside the church you're doomed to remain an infant this is what paul is saying you may be smart and eloquent and savvy but separate yourself from the church work against the cohesive agreement of her community refuse her admonitory work and her accountability and you'll remain small weak and spiritually malnourished Oh, how Christians need to learn this lesson in America today. Separate a limb from the body and it dies. But how hard it is to keep Christians invested in the work of the church. How difficult it is to get the Christian to carve out time for the gathering of the church in fellowship. In a nation where church prayer meetings have been largely dispensed with, when streaming from home is now common, where you can have the elements of the Lord's Supper shipped to your door by Amazon. What a boon where blogs and vlogs have largely replaced the gathered and organized teaching of the church, where we've argued over having the church's doors open on the Sabbath, brethren, where special interests and doctrinal heresy and worldly philosophies have sown outrageous division, no wonder the church in America is such a spiritual infant, immature and unable to take in better food. No wonder at times we scratch our heads and strain our eyes trying to catch even the smallest evidence of the stature of Christ in her. Brethren, let's learn the lesson Paul is teaching. The local church and her corporate worship and devotions, these things are vital to our spiritual growth. The unity and the fellowship of the local church in the wisdom and the power of the gospel is vital to our sanctification. If you've been bothered by the preaching this morning, bothered enough to ask yourself, am I growing spiritually into the stature of Jesus Christ? If that's you, and you're unable to answer yes with certainty, then learn from Jesus through his apostles' teaching this morning and commit yourself to re-engage to fully engage in the fellowship into which you have been called by God, the fellowship of Jesus Christ with the brethren here at Christ Reformed Church. Take a spiritually mature step in the direction of sanctification and spiritual growth and commit yourself to love what Jesus loves and gave his life to redeem the bride, his church. I commend that to your thinking this day. God help us all in that endeavor. Amen.